Warning. The following episode contains descriptions of graphic content that may not be suitable for listeners under 13. Listener discretion is advised. On March 13, 1994, Henry Lewis was arrested in East Charlotte, North Carolina. Over the course of 10 hours, he confessed to the murders of 10 Charlotte women and confessed to the one murder he committed in his hometown of Barnwell, South Carolina. Lewis would commit these crimes of rape, robbery, and murder over the course of four years undetected until one lone handprint was discovered on the trunk of Betty Jean Bochum's car, whom he murdered on March 8th, 1994. What's up, guys? It's your girl, Tay, and welcome back to Vitamelanin. This episode, I'm going solo as we dive into a true crime episode that's sure to pique your interest. This episode's criminal is Henry Louis Wallace, otherwise known as the Taco Bell Killer. We'll get into why that is soon enough, but first... Let's take a look into what we know about his early life. Henry Lewis Wallace was born in Barnwell, South Carolina on November 4, 1965, to a single mother named Lottie Mae Wallace. Many sources say that his mother was severely physically and psychologically abusive to him growing up. According to an episode of A&E's First Blood, Wallace told police that he'd begun to have violent fantasies of dominating women after witnessing a gang rape when he was only eight years old. At age 16, he would attempt to rape his friend's younger sister, and eventually, he began to have rough sex with sex workers he encountered. Despite his troubling start at a young age, he got good grades in high school. He served on the student council, and he became the only male cheerleader on the cheerleading squad, where he was well-liked. By age 20, Wallace had enlisted in the United States Navy and married Marietta Barbum, his high school sweetheart. However, the marriage would be short-lived. His time in the Navy would also be the beginning of his long criminal career. He began to use several different drugs, including crack cocaine. In Seattle, Washington, where he was stationed in 1987, sources say that Wallace committed his first rape. During this time, he was also served several warrants for several burglaries in and around the Seattle metro area. In January of 1988, he would be arrested for breaking into a hardware store, and by 1992, he would be honorably discharged from the Navy for stealing. Wallace's first murder victim was 18-year-old Tashonda Bethea, a Barnwell High School student. Her body was found in a pond in March 1990. Wallace would be questioned for her disappearance, but no charges would be brought against him. He then moved to Charlotte in November of 1991, where he killed 10 more women through March 1994. He found jobs at several fast food restaurants in East Charlotte before becoming a manager at a Taco Bell near the now-defunct Eastland Mall. As the manager of the Taco Bell restaurant in Charlotte, North Carolina, 10 of his victims were his friends or acquaintances, including three who worked at the restaurant and one who was the roommate of his girlfriend. Let's move on with the timeline of the murders. In May 1992, Wallace beat to death a convicted drug dealer and prostitute, Sharon Nance, after she demanded payment for her services. He would leave her body by railroad tracks where she was found a few days later. The very next month, his next victim would be 20-year-old Caroline Love. He raped and strangled her in her apartment, then dumped her body in a wooded area where it would take almost two years for her to be discovered. Love was a friend of Wallace's girlfriend and roommate. She was also a college student working at Bojangles at the time of her disappearance. After he killed her... Wallace would join his girlfriend and love's sister in filing a missing persons report. This is not uncommon when it comes to serial killers. 
sometimes it is those that are closest to the investigation, those that want to watch their handiwork um, take place. And so they will do things to either try to cover it up, but also to still remain close to the crime because it helps them to relive the crime. But anywho, back to the timeline. Several months would pass before his next victim. On February 19th, 1993, Wallace raped and killed 20-year-old Shauna Hawk. She was a college student working at Taco Bell where Wallace was her supervisor. And like this man had the audacity, the unmitigated gall to attend this woman's funeral knowing he was the one who murdered her. Like, fucking wild. But, anywho. On June 22nd, 1993, he claimed the life of co-worker and manager Audrey Spain. Her body would be found on June 25th. On August 10th, 1993, Wallace raped and strangled Valencia M. Jumper, a 21-year-old college student from Columbia, South Carolina, his sister's friend. He then set her body on fire to cover up the crime. A few days after her murder, Wallace and his sister went to Valencia's funeral, even sending her family condolences. A month later, on September 14, 1993, Wallace went to the apartment of 20-year-old Michelle Stinson, a college student and friend of his from Taco Bell. He raped her and sometime later strangled and stabbed her in front of her oldest son. On February 14, 1994, Wallace was arrested for shoplifting but the police did not make a connection between him and the murders at the time. February 20th, 1994, a day after Shauna's mother appealed to the public to find her daughter's murderer, Wallace raped and strangled Vanessa Little Mac, 25, in her West Charlotte apartment. He knew her through her sister, who was also a co-worker of his at Taco Bell. On March 8th, 1994, Wallace robbed, raped, and strangled 24-year-old Betty Jean Bochum a day after her birthday. Bochum and Wallace's girlfriend were co-workers at Bojangles, where she was the assistant manager. After Wallace murdered her, he took a considerable amount of valuables from the house. Then he left the apartment with her car. He pawned everything except the car, which he left at a local shopping center. Sources say that this mistake would lead to his capture as they discovered his handprint on the trunk of her car. Wallace returned to the same apartment complex on March 8, 1994, knowing that Bernice Woods would be at work so he could murder Woods' girlfriend, Brandy June Henderson, an 18-year-old high school student, homemaker, and mother of Woods' child. Wallace raped Henderson while she held her baby and then strangled her. He also strangled her son, who survived. The police increased their patrols in East Charlotte after two bodies of young black women were found at the Lake Apartments complex. Even so, Wallace sneaked in to rob and strangle Deborah Ann Slaughter, who had been his girlfriend's co-worker. He raped, strangled, and stabbed her 38 times in the stomach and chest before taking money from the apartment for drugs. Slaughter's body was found on March 12, 1994. Wallace was arrested on March 13, 1994. For 10 hours, he confessed to the murders of 10 Charlotte women. He then confessed to an 11th murder he committed before moving to Charlotte. Wallace described in detail the women's appearances as well as how he raped, robbed, and killed these women. After his arrest and subsequent confessions, Charlotte's police chief was elated and assured the women of East Charlotte were safe. However, as you could expect, the citizens criticized the police department's negligence during the investigations that allowed for the killing sprees to continue for so long, largely unchecked. 
Many expressed that they felt like this was because the victims were black women and because they were deemed as quote unquote fast or with a quote unquote questionable history, they did not deserve the kind of attention and care they deserved. As Shauna Denise Hawk's mother, Dee Sumter said, quote, the victims weren't prominent people with socioeconomic status. They weren't special and they were black, unquote. Charlotte's police chief, Dennis Nowicki, had said he was unaware of a killer until early March 1994 when three young black women were murdered within four days. The Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department apologized to Charlotte's citizens for not spotting a link between the murders sooner. However, they said the murder cases varied enough to throw them off Wallace's trail. Until Wallace's murder pace picked up in the early weeks of March 1994, the deaths were sporadic and not entirely similar. It was only during the week of March 9, 1994, that Charlotte police warned the people in East Charlotte that there was a serial killer on the loose. Former Charlotte-Mecklenburg homicide detective Gary McFadden acknowledged that while he believed there was racial undertones to the case, he also believed that the police department was severely understaffed during the times of the murders, so they weren't able to give the victims the proper attention they should have. If they had the proper manpower, they probably would have noticed the link between these victims sooner. It should also be noted that in 1994, the Charlotte Police Department asked for help from the FBI. However, the FBI did not think that the murders were the workings of a serial killer because the killer did not fit the usual profile of a serial killer at that time. Carrying out the murders of close friends and acquaintances didn't fit what was considered the norm for this particular crime. One such report by Joseph Geringer also said that the police had a hard time pinpointing the type of criminal that Wallace was because his MO, or modus operandi, was too sloppy to characterize. Over the next two years, Wallace's case was delayed over the choice of venue, DNA evidence for murder victims, and jury selection. His trial finally began in September 1996. Need I remind you guys, this is two years after he has confessed and has been arrested for his crime. During opening statements, the prosecutors argued for the death penalty. Defense attorneys asked for a life sentence, arguing that Wallace suffered from mental illness and that the killings were not first-degree murder because they didn't result from premeditation and deliberation. Psychologist Faye Sultan testified during the trial that Wallace had been a victim of physical and mental abuse at the hands of his mother since birth and that he had a mental illness at the time of the killings, thus arguing for a life sentence without parole instead of the death penalty. On January 7, 1997, Wallace was found guilty of nine murders. Hold on. Y'all, that's 10 days before I was born. Uh, oh, my goodness. <laughs> Anywho, um, on January 29th, he was handed nine death sentences. Following his sentencing, Wallace made a statement to his victims' families. Quote, none of these women, none of your daughters, mothers, sisters, or family members in any way deserved what they got. They did nothing to me that warranted their death, Unquote. On June 5th, 1998, Wallace married a former prison nurse, Rebecca Torrias, in a ceremony next to the state's execution chamber. Public defender Isabel Day served as an official witness and photographer. Since being sentenced to death in 1997, Wallace has appealed to overturn the death sentence, stating that his confessions were coerced and his constitutional rights were violated in the process. The North Carolina Supreme Court upheld the sentences in 2000, and in 2001, the U.S. Supreme Court denied his appeal. In 2005, Superior Court Judge Charles Lamb rejected Wallace's latest appeal to overturn his convictions and death sentences. 
As of 2023, Henry Louis Wallace still remains on death row, awaiting execution at Central Prison in Raleigh, North Carolina. All right, guys, thanks so much for rocking with us here on Vitamelanin Podcast. I know it was a short episode this week, pretty short and sweet to the point. Um, Henry Louis Wallace, there really wasn't a lot of information about him, not really even a lot of information about the murders um, that we were able to like find. Also, he's not the only Taco Bell killer. There's a Taco Bell strangler. And so a lot of the information would kind of get muddied together. So trying to like wade through the waters to really find and get to the root of like what is actually the truth. I can't tell you how many different um, documentaries that I watched that were made on YouTube that also didn't have as much information because like I said, he's not very well known. But I found him to be so interesting and intriguing because most serial killers don't kill people that are in close proximity to them. Acquaintances, friends, people that are like family. That's not something that's normal for a serial killer. Um, and so in, in that assessment, it makes a lot of sense, um, you know, as far as like the FBI at the time where they couldn't classify it as a serial killer because that's not what they knew. However, thankfully things have expanded and so it's now more so about the number of victims that you accrue in a certain amount of time about the cooling off periods things of that nature while it is still more common to have serial killers kill people who are not in close proximity to them um that are not people that they know um they are there are some that do it for convenience and for henry these people were convenient these people were close to him but having these murderous fantasies and these violent tendencies, having somebody who was closely accessible as opposed to having to go out into the streets to find someone random, it worked for him um, until, of course, it didn't. <laughs> so anywho, I hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode. Thanks for rocking with me. I know it's just me. It's not nearly as exciting unless we've got C on board. But I had a good time giving you guys this true crime episode. Let me know what else you want to hear. Of course, it doesn't always have to be about murder and killers. We've got cult leaders. Um, we've got fraudsters. We've got mobsters. Uh, well, you know, gangsters for us. You know what I'm saying? Because we niggas, right? But <laughs> we have so many different facets of crime, right? So let me know if there is a particular one that you find to be interesting that you would love me to do a segment on um, or episode on. I would love to do the research and type it out. When I say this was so much fun, it was a lot of fun and I really enjoyed it. Um, I do not have a black fact for this week. Um, usually that's CC, but I told her, let me handle it this week because uh, <laughs> I got to do my fucking job. Right. Right. OK. However, there's really no black fact because this whole fucking episode was a black fact, if we're going to be honest here. So stay tuned for our regularly scheduled shenanigans. Let us know what you're interested in hearing. Like I said, you can find all of our information in the description bar in the episode description bar. Um, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music slash Audible. We are fucking Googleable. So type in Vitamelanin Podcast into that Google search bar and you will find us. Okay. Great. Thank you so, so much for your continued support. Many things are in store for this podcast. Having y'all along for the ride is incredibly important and valuable to this podcast and the success of it all. We really appreciate it. To our international listeners, we really, really thank you and appreciate you. 
As far as a black business goes, I don't quite have a black business per se, but I would like to shout out another true crime podcast, um, and that's Black True Crime. It's two sisters, Kayla and Christian. Ugh. Kayla and Kristen, sorry, my ladies, um, they're two sisters that enjoy shedding light on the lives of, and crimes of black serial killers, as well as the lives of their victims. So they discuss missing person cases, unsolved murders, and more. Go check them out at blacktruecrime.com. They also have a Patreon where you can support, and I think that's really fucking dope. Anywho, thank you all so much. Um, I really appreciate you guys. Vitamelon thanks you from the bottom of our hearts. And we hope that you guys have a really, really blessed, amazing, fruitful, joyous week ahead of you. Bye. Vitamelanin is not advised for people who don't enjoy a little true crime. Side effects may include guessing the killer on a show, movie, or TV show before the end, listening to true crime podcasts on a regular day because it's great background noise for work, believing you can get away with murder, being fascinated with the psychology of serial killers, but not broadcasting because you know you'll get a side eye, and still being shocked that serial killers are black. If these symptoms persist, try not to kill someone and just watch a documentary.